And let's turn to the book of Deuteronomy this evening, Sunday evenings through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And while we're turning there, uh, just a reminder, Vacation Bible School for the kiddos starts tomorrow, uh, 8.45, and uh, so uh, runs through Friday. Be sure to use this opportunity, last kind of minute or final hours, to invite folks to come out to it and uh, put it on your prayer list this week for the servants that will be serving uh, through Friday and then also all of the children that will be, uh, be here for the spiritual side of things, of course, salvation and their growth, and then also for the physical side that they'd have a great time and a safe time too. Also be aware that uh, we'll be clearing the stage after the service this evening, and so be careful around the stage area. Also, if you'd like to stay and help uh, get the sanctuary and the fellowship hall and the rooms ready for um, for the Vacation Bible School. We'd welcome your help. Also out in the courtyard after our service this evening where the canopies are, there'll be some live music for you to enjoy. It's not a concert where you have to stop what you're doing and give full attention to it. It's just uh, a, a gift to share in music and you can use it however you went, uh, like just to be a blessing to your heart and to the Lord this evening so be aware of that I didn't want anybody sit, you know, standing in here fellowshipping and all and say, find out later and say wow how come nobody told us about it and uh, that church I'll tell you they're, well anyway so we're trying to save you that aggravation and, uh, and so here we are the book of Deuteronomy now let's see I'm just checking out some things here mm-hmm okay yeah, all right. We can proceed. Okay, all right. Well, the book of Deuteronomy is a continuation of the narrative of God uh, related to the creation of mankind, but as it begins in the book of Genesis, but it, focuses, it begins to narrow its focus through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, where we've already been, and it narrows its focus greater and further and further down upon the Jews, because it's going to be through the Jews or the nation of Israel that God is going to do the most significant thing in human history, and that is to bring the Savior of the world, into the world, through the Jews, uh, Jesus himself. And so they are the focus uh, of the attention, main focus of the attention of the Old Testament from Genesis kind of on because uh, salvation is going to come into the world through them. Plus, they, oh, God used them to supply us with the uh, Old Testament scriptures. The book of Deuteronomy covers a period of only 37 days of the history of the Jewish people. So you've got 30 some chapters here, whatever it is, a pretty long book, and all that. 37 days. So it's not a very big block of time in their history, but there is something that is supposed to happen in their lives as God's children during those 37 days that is very, very important. In fact, their whole future rests upon the, them taking heed to what God wants to do in their life during these, these 37 days. Now, concerning the purpose uh, of the book, the children of this Israel are camped on the uh, east side of the Jordan River on what is known as the plains of Moab, uh, modern-day Jordan. They're waiting to enter into Canaan, into the promised land, begin the conquest of the land that God has, has promised to them. Remember that the first generation is dead at this point. Uh, they they kind of died out in, in, in the uh, whole uh, idolatry and immorality of, of uh, Peor there that, that happened. And uh, so this is not the first generation that came out of Egypt. They're all gone except for Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. This is the second generation 
that he's, uh, Moses is speaking to in the book of Deuteronomy. The English title uh, of Deuteronomy, it means the second law, and it comes from the Septuagint's interpretation of chapter 17, verse 18, which talks about a copy of the law. And the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and uh, and so uh, it, it speaks about the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means. But we have to be very careful to realize that Deuteronomy doesn't contain a second law or a new law. It's just the restating of the old law and uh, the original law. And uh, so the second generation has never had a formal. They're just little kiddos. Uh, when Moses spoke the law of Moses, he received it from God at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the ordinances related to sacrifices and the building of the tabernacle and the clothing and the, of the priesthood and all. They're just little old kids. They weren't listening to law that much and all. So that all got spoken to their parents, to the first generation. They've never had a formal uh, teaching of the law in their life, and so Moses is going to give this uh, to them. But the interesting thing about the book of Deuteronomy, it isn't like we're going to be reading the book of uh, Numbers and the Leviticus and the book of Numbers all over again. It isn't like this kind of rote recitation of, of the original law. What Moses does in the book of Deuteronomy is he, he takes on the mantle uh, of less of a... Uh, a teacher or a declarer of the law, he takes on the mantle of a prophet. And so he restates the law to this second generation, but his restating of the law is filled with encouragements, it's filled with uh, great warnings uh, against disobeying the law, and, uh, and uh, even threats that he gives in terms of disobeying the, Lord, the law. And of course all of these things are needed or he wouldn't have done it. The book consists largely of a series of five sermons which Moses delivers to the children uh, of Israel. So that's what it is. It's a collection of five sermons by Moses. If you ever get the, the CD of this, I'd pay you good money for it. I'd like to hear what his voice sounded like. But it, it's five sermons that, that he gives uh, to them. Moses looks at the children of Israel. They're about ready to go into the promised land. He sees they're physically ready. They're organized and a lot of good things are there. But he realizes that until the law of God is, has kind of a working place in their lives, they are not spiritually ready uh, for the, the conquest of the promised land. And so he realizes, I've got one final opportunity here to prepare them spiritually for what lies ahead of them. And so he gives them this series of five sermons in order to do that. And so uh, Moses, again as I said, that has that one opportunity to prepare them and, and that's what uh, that's what he does. One final opportunity to impart to this generation. And he loves the children of Israel. He's walked with God so many years. He is um, 120 years old minus 37 days. That's how old he is. He's got a long history with God. These are just pups that are in front of him. And they got a big old thing that they're going to do in the conquest of the land. And he wants to take all that he's learned about God and, and what's important in a relationship with God. And he wants to impart that to them. Now, you take uh, any time you've got a great leader in human history. 
And, and if you study great leaders in human history, and Moses is one of the great leaders in human history, one of the things, if you get a chance to study the final thing that any great leader speaks at the end of their life, I mean, usually the world is all ears. That's exactly what we have here with Moses. And so here is this great leader, this long history with God. Imagine what is tied up in this man, and now he's going to sit down, and in five sermons he's going to deliver that to them. I think about Chuck Smith, and Chuck Smith is, is one of my mentors, and I, I feel my, consider myself to have had three great mentors in my life. They, of course, shouldn't receive any blame for my life, but I consider them uh, to be mentors. But I think about Chuck and how the Lord has used him. And I mean, the whole world has been impacted and, and, uh, by how God has used him. And he'd be the first one to say, you know, it's all the Lord and everything. But you, you think about what has been bound up. In, what's bound up in this man's heart and his mind and his spirit just between him and God? And if you could just get a little bit of time to pick away at it and learn it, wouldn't that be great? And uh, so, Chuck, if you're listening to me, I'd like five sermons, you know, and just some free time with you. Just kidding on that. And uh, because he, of course, is just always very aware of what I'm doing. And uh, doesn't have any more important things to do uh, in, his, in his life. So here is here's Moses. He's going to give these five sermons. Now, there's this kind of thing that sometimes uh, pastors get asked. And sometimes they'll ask one another. But uh, usually they'll get asked by someone else. And someone will say, um, Pastor, if you could preach or teach um, one final sermon, what would you preach on? What would you teach on? What would be the subject? And most pastors would have very quickly have an answer for you related to what the, they, would, they would preach on. One more chance to stand before God's people. This is what I would say to them. After 120 years, of, or you know, plus or minus, couldn't be plus, minus uh, walking with God, we don't have to guess what would be the final great theme that Moses would speak to God's people because all five sermons have the very same theme. And the theme is obedience. Obedience. Walks with God for so many decades. And when he gets to the end of his life, he comes to, it's real simple for him, obey God. And if you obey God, you're going to have the greatest life. Won't be the easiest life necessarily, but you have the greatest life a person can live. And if you disobey God, then you put yourself on the side where not only He cannot bless you, but He must chasten you. You put yourself on a path that is cursed. There's nothing good to be found on it. And so it's like, I think I talked about somewhere along the way, I remember when Karen and I were relatively new Christians and there was this musical being uh, put on. She was involved with it in Calvary Chapel of Napa. And it was called Ansylvania. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. But here was the takeaway point for all the kids that left Ansylvania. You win or lose by the way you choose. You win or lose by the way you choose. Personal responsibility in a nation that knows is, is moving away from personal responsibility. It's not being taught increasingly in the homes. It's not being taught in the schools. It's being left to employers to teach one generation after another now personal responsibility. But you win or lose by the way you choose. And there's a path of obedience and a path of disobedience put before every child of God. And Moses is going to spend five sermons 
encouraging people, walk on the path of obedience and discouraging them and warning them away from the path of, of disobedience. And so this is the single great theme that fills his heart. Now, uh, it, when we talk about these being the final sermons of Moses, Moses dies at the end of this book. He's going to die in 37 days, somewhere in that, this period here. So that's how we know this was his, these were his final sermons. Now somebody may look and say, uh, Deuteronomy. I mean, there's a book of Deuteronomy. I mean, how many Christians know there's a book of Deuteronomy in the Bible anymore? The Bible isn't taught from one to the other hardly anymore. But soon we can look and say, the book of Deuteronomy, I can hardly pr- pronounce it here. I mean, does it have anything to say to us as Christians? And it does. The book of Deuteronomy is quoted over 80 times in the New Testament. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that the writers of the New Testament in the early church, they assumed a knowledge, a working knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy in every single Christian's life. Not just that it had been read through and and a little bit and all, but they understood it from one end to the other. Because they just quote verses from Deuteronomy and they expect a person to listen to that quote and realize, ah, I get it, I see what Paul's saying, I see what Peter is saying, I see what Jesus is saying. Jesus himself quoted from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other book in the New Testament. You know what that tells us? That tells us that we are reading a book that was a favorite of our Savior's. He knew it very well, of course, inside and out. But he quoted this book with its theme of obedience over and over again. In fact, when early in his public ministry, following the water baptism there at the Jordan River by, by John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, and he begins his public ministry and he goes out uh, for a period of 40 days and 40 nights and in the wilderness and nothing to, nothing to eat or nothing to drink and the devil comes and tempts him during that time. And he, what is the devil doing? The devil does what the devil does with anyone that's being obedient to God, tempts him to be disobedient to God. So you've got this temptation to disobedience. It's interesting, Jesus met the temptations of the devil every, all three times with a scripture from the Word of God. And all three scriptures came from the book of Deuteronomy. Why? Because the book of Deuteronomy, the theme of it is obedience. You are tempting me to disobey. I will meet it with the Old Testament scriptures that have to do with obedience. And so Jesus, it was a part of of kind of a working place even in his life and in, in his ministry. So... Um, very, very important book, important to our Savior, important to the early church. Now, here's how the book lays out. We won't lay the whole thing out. I just want you to know that from chapter 1, uh, verse 1, and really kind of technically somewhere there in about verse 5, Moses begins his first sermon. And the first sermon goes from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 3, verse 43. So it's all just one sermon that he's speaking to him. We'll get as far as we can in that one sermon here, uh, here tonight, but that's kind of how it lays out. And so what Moses does now is he gives them a review of their history following their exodus out of Egypt uh, until the time that they came to the plains of Moab, which is where they are right now, 40 years later, waiting to go into the promised land. Chapter 1, verse 1. All right, 
We're in the Bible now, okay? Though, though that wasn't a bad introduction, if I do say so myself. These are the words which Moses, here's the speaker, spoke to all of Israel. That's the audience, the second generation. On this side, the location of it, this side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain, opposites of between uh, uh, Paran, uh, Tophel, uh, uh, Laban, uh, Hazaroth, and Diz, uh, Dizahab. And so it is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So this is the location where he delivers the sermon. And then by way of introduction, he declares that the distance that was uh, required to travel between uh, Horeb and Horeb is kind of Deuteronomy's name for Mount Sinai, where they received the law from God and uh, where they had entered into a covenant with God, agreeing to keep his law and to be his, his covenant people. That, that the, the time that it would take to go from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea should have taken 11 days. And, and instead, it took them 38 years. Okay, who, who had the maps on that? That's a pretty big mess up right there. Now remember, when, they came out of the children, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they spent legitimately about a year and a half um, receiving, wandering around a little bit out of Egypt, receiving the law of God from, uh, from the Lord by Moses on Mount Sinai. That took a period of time as he went up 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law. And then, of course, things were a little uh, disjointed down in the camp, dancing around that calf and all, that golden calf. And then, after having received the law from God, they then spent a period of about a year building the tabernacle, building all of the cloth, building all of the furnishings and all of these things. So, about a year and a half of those 40 years that was legitimate. That was a legitimate time that was, uh, was not lost time. But, but here they spend 38 years, uh, 38 and a half years maybe, making an 11-day journey in the, in the distance between Mount Seir, I'm sorry, Mount Seir, uh, from Hora by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea as a distance of 125 uh, miles. And so Moses here, uh, as he goes on in verse 3, he said, Now it came to pass in the 40th year and the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as uh, commandments to them. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who dwelt at uh, Ashtaroth in uh, Edra. Uh, so here Moses contrasts the 11 days and the 40 years, the 38 years, in order to emphasize the importance of obeying God's word. Basically, he's what he's going to lay out to these folks is this. If we had obeyed God, we'd have been here 38 years ago. But disobedience to God turned an 11-day journey into a 38-year journey. That's the point that he's making to him in, in this sermon. Now, again, the typology is this. For the Christian, the promised land represents the spiritual life that is ours in Christ Jesus. Our promised land is this entire New Testament that sits in front of us. 
All of the things that God says. Now listen, dear Christian, these are all the things that are already yours. They're given to you, they're free, they're yours because of your faith in Christ. And, and instead of going into a physical land and conquering one city after another, what we do is as we read the New Testament, we read this promise, and that represents a city. And we say, I want that city, I want that promise to represent my life. I want to conquer that. I want that to be a part of my life. Then we move on to the next promise and the next promise and the, and, and the next uh, promise. And so that's what it represents to us. Uh, possessing all of the promises, all that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. God has said it's mine, and, and I claim it now by faith. And we spy out the land by reading the New Testament and uh, finding out what is ours. And I'll tell you, as you read the promises in the New Testament, you realize it is a spiritual land flowing with milk and honey, and your lips can begin to, to smack, and uh, you say, I want to have all of those things. And, and so the, the children of Israel, they will never ever fully possess all of the land that God gave to them. They'll never fully possess all of the promised land. They, only for a little while under David and Solomon would they possess uh, most, most of it. I think of how important it is for the children of Israel, and they lacked it, even after they went in the promised land. That's also a danger for us as Christians, is to lack a hunger and a zeal to possess all that is ours in Christ Jesus. Have you stopped growing as a Christian? Have you stopped growing as a Christian? Not a single one of us should ever stop. We should never, ever uh, uh, ebb in any way in our zeal for saying, I want to experience the Christian life as it's described in this book as fully as a person can experience it this side of, of heaven. And I don't want to miss out on a single promise. And they got in a certain way, and a certain distance in the land, said, this is good enough for me, and, and then they, they stopped conquering the land. And so there needs to be that, that kind of zeal to keep on growing uh, spiritually. I think about the Apostle Paul, the very end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and he's in prison, and he's, and he's going to die for his faith just in a short number of months. He writes to Timothy, and he said, Listen, would you bring me that jacket? You know, bring me the cloak. It's cold here in this, in this prison. And he said, Would you bring the books, and especially the parchments? Paul! You've run hard for so many years. The whole world, human history has been changed because of your life and God's use of you. They're going to take your head off in just a few months. Why don't you read some fiction or something? Just relax. He said, you bring me the books and you bring me the parchments. I want to grow all the way to the end. And that's the spirit we need, uh, need to have. And so this is the... the uh, the contrast between the two periods of time, and it lets us know the time at which these sermons were given. Now, verse 5. Here is, again, the location stated of the sermon. On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb, Mount Sinai. 
saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Now remember, they've been there about a year and a half. Got the tabernacle made, they got the furnishings made, they got everything made, the priesthood is set, he's got all of his garments and, and all of these different things, and they're waiting. I mean, for hundreds of years, God has promised to the children of Israel, going all the way back to Abraham, you're going to have this land, it's going to be yours. Land filled with milk and honey, you're going to camp there, that's going to be your land. And so here they are, this hundreds of years, this, this promise been given to them. God finally speaks there and said, you've dwelt long enough here. Let's put everything together and let's head to the promised land. Can you imagine the excitement? We're going to be the ones. I mean, we're the generation that's chosen to go do this. I mean, it would just been, I mean, the excitement of packing up on, on that day. And God said, turn and take your journey. Go to the mountains of the Amorites to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland in the south on the sea coast, and to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And so he gives them the boundaries of the land that was promised to Abraham. And see, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. I mean, this is it. Here we go. The promise we get to do it is anybody feeling the excitement at all Lord I, I prayed before this service that, that, that this would okay all right I've got enough for all of you okay. and I spoke to you at that time saying I alone am not able to bear you and so he's recounting their history and the Lord has multiplied you and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude so he's leading these two or three million people toward the promised land, huge number of people. And he said, may the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? So he's not complaining. It's a, uh, a two to three million person congregation is a really a big congregation for one person. He doesn't have a lot of extended leadership. And so we remember as we were going through the historical books there, the, through the Pentateuch, there came a point in time where his father-in-law, Jethro, said, Moses, what are you doing? It's not good for you. It's not good for the people. You're out there sitting there and they're bringing all these cases to you to judge and their conflicts between one another and making decisions based upon the word of God related to one another. You can't be doing this. It's going to wear you out. It's going to wear the people out. You need to delegate some authority here. And Moses listened to his father-in-law Jethro, and, and, uh, and it was a good idea to him. And so what did he do? He enlarged the leadership team. He added a little bit of structure, leadership structure, to the church, to the congregation there, in order that uh, a larger group of men would, would be, be available to people to bring and say, this happened to me between me and my neighbor, and we're wondering, what does the Word of God say like, about this so we can do the right thing? And so there was this delegation of, of authority. And, and so he said, you remember all of this? And, and, uh, and I said to you, choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and you said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. And so I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. And then I commanded your judges at that time, uh, saying, hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously that is based on the word of God between man and his brother 
or the stranger who, who is with him. So it applied to Gentiles too. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence. In other words, you should have a fear of God that's greater than the fear of man. So no matter how powerful they are or, or famous or anything like that, you need to, to do what God's word says and give that judgment. You're representing God. You need to give them God's word. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time uh, all the things which you should do. Now Moses, when he recounts this to the second generation, he doesn't tell them that this was uh, something that came out of a discussion between he and his father-in-law Jethro. There's no need to do that. It's not a part of, they don't need to know the whole history of things. He's just telling them how this whole kind of uh, authority structure among God's people came into place. And so here you have a, a classic case in the history of the Jews, and it also carries into the New Testament, where uh, a lack of structure uh, was um, uh, really hurting the effectiveness of God's people. Now, there, there are times in, among God's people where you can overstructure a church. You can have too many rules, it can be too set up and too, too many uh, systems and, and all of these channels and all that kind of stuff so that uh, there's no need to seek the Lord or the leading of the Holy Spirit. Too much is taken out of the Holy Spirit's hands as a result of it. So too much structure is a bad thing. I think we have to be careful as Christians to realize that some structure is not a bad thing. There are certain Christians that think the more chaotic a church is, the more kind of random it is, you know, it, it starts whenever it wants to start and nobody knows who's in charge of what and, and things just kind of get done as people are, uh, you know, led by the Lord and this kind of thing. And so you've just got this sloppy ministry. And the idea is that the, the more the uh, more uh, unmanaged it is, the more spiritual it is. It is true. Uh, and so sometimes a little bit of structure, when it's directed by the Lord, it makes God's work and the work of the Holy Spirit even more effective. That's like Paul when he wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and they had their meetings were just out of control. Everybody said, yeah, that's the way it should be when the Holy Spirit's in charge. No, Paul said, everything's to be done decently and in order. When, in Acts chapter 6, when they established the office of a, of a deacon in the early church, it was adding some structure to the early church. But as a result of the adding of that structure, the elders were then able to do what they alone could do and give themselves the study of the Word and, and, and ministry of the Word and prayer and then the ministry of the Word of God in the in the whole region it exploded as a result so it never look at structure as being something that's against the Holy Spirit or against God too much can be too bad but there should be some of it and uh, you put me in a church you put me in any environment you put me in a church that doesn't start even remotely on time and nobody knows what they're doing the whole place like looks like a pig pen and uh, I, I may not uh, sit through the opening prayer because somebody ought to care about representing the Lord properly on things. Ministry ought to look like Jesus. And instead of Jesus, he has done all things uh, well. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me here uh, as it relates to Moses and the way the whole structure of this thing worked, he said, 
there in the end of verse 17. He said, these other guys that are over the fifties and they're over the tens and they're over the hundreds and they're over the thousands. And so a case would come to the person that's over the fifties and if he couldn't really handle the case, it was too much for him, it would move up to the next person, up to the next person. And so what you had is by the time a, any kind of a, a situation came before Moses, those were the hardest problems that were being brought to Moses. So even though Moses was making fewer decisions, the decisions he was making were very, very hard. And I think I mentioned this when we went through uh, earlier in the Bible on this issue. If, I, if God were to take me out of the pastorate and, uh, and I were to have you know, a handful of things where I would speak to uh, people that, uh, you know, is, uh, that attend a congregation, you know, attend a church and this kind of thing, but they don't understand maybe, you know, what's involved a little bit on the pastorate side of things. One of the things that I would really encourage God's people in is to be um, very understanding toward the difficulty of the decisions that pastors have to make in a local church. And especially the further they move up the authority structure. And as long as you have leadership that represents, and, and the reason I would want to wait till I was out of the pastorate to say these kinds of things is because if I said them while I remained a pastor, it would sound self-serving. But anyway, but I, so, uh, so I'm not trying to tell you anything about any current situation or anything like that, but to really look and say, you know, if these people really do pray, if they really do walk with God, I may not understand the complexity or all the nuances that were involved in that decision. But as long as it doesn't violate the word of God, I recognize it's a hard decision that they had to make there. And I'm going to stick with them on that. Because if, if, the, if the shoes and the role were reversed on things, you may find yourself making very much the same decision. So this was the kind of how the whole structure uh, worked. Verse 19. And so we departed from Horeb. And we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord our God had commanded us. And then we came to Kadesh Barnea. So they make their way from Mount Sinai. They make their way over to Kadesh Barnea. It's a very, very dry section of land and uh, uh, virtually waterless and also it was a difficult uh, journey that they made to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do and, uh, uh, and uh, do not fear or be, or be discouraged. And so here they're about to enter into the promised land. They're right on the edge of the promised land. We know from earlier that they fail here. But Moses is, is uh, reiterating to them. This is what I told you. Here we are. Now don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Let's take the land. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and uh, some spies to go into the land and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. Now this is the first time we, uh, we have revealed to us this part of the story. 
Uh, er, in the earlier account, uh, we didn't know that it was the children of Israel that approached Moses and, and said, listen, why don't we spend, send spies into the land? The, we have the record that Moses sent them in. Moses gives us a little greater information here. So the idea that it didn't come from Moses and it didn't come from God, they're both okay with it. Uh, it came from the people. And, but notice that in, in verse 22, it's very important to notice the reason that they wanted to send the spies in wasn't, we want to send spies in to make sure that the land is as great as God says because we think God is given to hyperbole or exaggeration. That, that wasn't it. Or we want to, you to go in and see if we can really do this. That wasn't their, their reason. He said, let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way in which we should go up and of the cities into which we should come. In other words, to give us a little kind of recon in order to know how best to attack the land. And so Moses didn't have a problem uh, with any of that. Their motive wasn't unbelief or, or anything like that. Uh, they, were, it was, they were looking for a way now to advance uh, God's plan for them. And so, so Moses said, the plan pleased me well, and so I took 12 of your men, one men, man from each tribe, and they departed and they went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol and they spied it out. And they also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and they brought it down to us. You remember, I mean, one cluster of grapes, it took two men to carry it, and grapes being my favorite fruit, wow, okay. That's some genetic something, I guess. And they brought a word back to us saying, it is a good land which the Lord God is giving to us. All right, so hip, hip, hooray, let's go. Nevertheless, and this, you've got to be careful of those neverthelesses in the Bible. Moses said, nevertheless, you would not go up. Notice he does not say you could not go up. You would not go up. This is an issue of, of their will. But rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites in order to destroy us. Wow. I mean, that's quite a complaint against God. He just brought us out here to kill us. God hates us. God hates And I mean, this, this isn't a, like a... Uh, uh, this is what they're saying. This is what they're believing to a person. God brought us... He got us out of Egypt. All of those plagues. He got us a cro miracle crossing of the Red Sea. He's Mara. He turned the, the bitter water fresh. He's taking care of us all this way. And, and, and what he's done, though, is he just had this devious plot just to get us out here and kill us. I mean, in, in the face of all that God had done for them, this is a shocking conclusion to come uh, too related to God. So it's not surprising. I think a little bit later, verse 35 of the same chapter, the Lord describes that generation. He says, they're an evil generation. Anyone that would think that of me and the light of my history with them, that's an evil generation. And I am not bringing them into the land. And I, I can't really argue with him. I wouldn't argue with him anyway. But I wouldn't argue with him uh, related to um, his... Uh, 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 conclusion related to that and then the decision that he made concerning that. 
So you just brought us out here to destroy us. And where can we go up? Our brethren have uh, discouraged our hearts saying, the people are greater and taller than we, the city. So the people are too great. The cities are too great. They're great and fortified to the, up to the heavens. And moreover, we've seen the sons of, uh, of the Anakim there. They're giants. We're grasshoppers in their sight. And so all they can see is the people and the walled cities and the giants, nothing about God. And, and this is what uh, drives their decision-making. And then Moses said, you remember, I said to you, don't be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, now, now underline this in your mind at least, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, he says to them, you are not hitting the impossible for the first time with God. You hit the, you got, you've got God doing the impossible in your life. It's a part of your history. You never got out of Egypt without that. And God fought for you, and, and how he fought for you there, he's going to fight for you, you now. It was the old saying, one plus God is a majority. Zero plus God is a majority. He's a majority on his own. Whoever side he's on, that's the, that's the person that's going to win in something. So he tries to, you know, to talk some faith into their, uh, into their hearts, and uh, they're, they're not going to accept it. He tries to remind them of how good God has been to them, how unjust these charges are they're bringing against them. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. I mean, when his son gets tired, and the dad can be tired himself, though God is never tired, and he picks that boy up, and he'll just carry that boy, because he loves that boy. God says, that's how God carried you all this time through the through the, the, the way that you went until you came to this place and yet for all of that you did not believe the Lord your God who went up in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents and to show you the way uh, you should go in the, fi- uh, in the fire by day and in the cloud by night. So what he's basically saying to the children. Uh, well, let's continue it here, verse 34. We, should, we shouldn't conclude until it's done. And, and the Lord heard the sound of your words. Now, they were, they were careful. They went into their tents to complain and say these things. It's kind of like kryptonite or something. I don't know. God doesn't come through. God hears what we say in our tents. So they went in there and they complained. And the Lord heard the sound of your words. I mean, that's very sobering, isn't it? The Bible says that God eavesdrops on every conversation we have about him. And he writes them in a book. Not so he can judge us, because, but it assumes that we're going to be saying great things about him because of how great he is. And, and so God heard your words, and this was his response. He was angry. And he took an oath, and this is the oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to your fathers. I'm not taking these kind of people in there. Except Caleb, the son of and he shall see it. And to him and his children, listen, it's not my fault he had that name. And so, except Caleb, he'll see it. And to him and his children, I am giving the land on which he walked. And here's the reason, because he circle it wholly Follow the Lord completely. That's the, that is the encapsulation of Caleb's life. And we'll be reading a lot more about him as we go through the Bible. He followed the Lord 
100%. And God noticed it. And, and even in a context of unbelief among God's people, he appreciated it. He, he, could, he could note, he said, okay, they're all this, but there are exceptions. And he takes note of, of the individual, individual commitment of, of a person. And uh, the Lord was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be the victims, if we take them into the land, will all be slaughtered, our kids will be slaughtered, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, in other words, they're very young, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. And so he directs them back away from the edge of the border there and, and uh, says, you go back into uh, your wilderness wandering. And one of the things, why would Moses bring up this whole uh, kind of uh, dismal part of their history? The point that he's making to this second generation is this. We have already uh, done unbelief and disobedience. We've already been there and done that. We know where that leads in our lives. So let's not do that again. Let's find out what faith and obedience translates into in a human life. See where that path leads us. And that's the point he's trying to make to them. And it's a good word to us. I mean, some of you could, someone may be sitting here tonight and you're coming back from a backslide. You're coming back from a long period or a short period of, of being away from the Lord. And so what does God come in and, and do with you? And what would he speak to you tonight? Listen, so what's the lesson learned? You've been there and you've done that. You know there's nothing on that path, right? Okay, let's find out what faith and obedience, what, what that will translate into in a human life. Let's head out into it. That's a good word, and, and that's a, a, an encouraging word. And he's trying to be an encouragement uh, to them here, but it's an encouragement with some barbs uh, uh, on it. And so he tells them that they need to go, uh, verse 40, going to go back, uh, take the journey, go back into the wilderness by way uh, of the Red Sea. And, and the, then you answered, and you said to me, uh, following hearing God's judgment, You've, we have sinned against the Lord, and we're, now we're ready to, we'll get, we're going to go out and we'll fight now. Just as the Lord our God commanded us. And, and when every one of you had girded up his uh, weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, don't go up to fight, uh, up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. And so I, I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord, and then again, it's a circleable word, and presumptuously went up into the mountain, and the Amorites who dwelt on that mountain, they came out against you, and they defeated you, they chased you as bees do, and drove you back from Seir uh, to Horma. I, I, I hope, um, I, I think that every childhood should involve, don't feel bad if yours doesn't, but every childhood should involve getting too close to a beehive and then getting swarmed in your run. 
So it's a picture. You, you swing in your hands like crazy trying to run away from the... I probably shouldn't be saying this, so scratch this really from... Uh, but it's quite a picture. It's a, de- you're, it's a desperate run that you're engaged in to try and run away from the enemies that these bees are. But that was their kind of a picture that gets put up in their mind. They're running. They've dropped everything. They're just running back to to uh, the base camp and then you returned you wept before the Lord the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you I think that it is very very important uh, for us as Christians uh, especially today with so much teaching going on in in professing Christianity about faith that is uh, just kind of uh, crazy today Sometimes, you know, when sometimes when we I think that when we think about faith today, we think that um, part of the confusion with it is that uh, I uh, I feel like I have a lack of faith because I'm not doing enough for God, or that people we we can tend to think that people that really live by faith are people that are living at least a little more by faith than I am. <laughs> we very rarely say, yeah, I'm living a life of faith. And the reason is, is because we can sometimes have these ideas of faith. The, the best way, uh, wrong ideas of it, the best way to express our faith toward God is to simply obey His Word. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you've got the great hall of faith there, and these great heroes of the faith that are listed, there isn't a single person in that hall of faith that had to guess God's will for their life and then call that faith and then try and do it. Every one of them had absolute clarity from God on what they were supposed to do. You say, where'd the faith come in? The faith came in and that they were willing to do it in spite of the circumstances. That's where the faith comes in. Faith is not guessing God's will and then throwing myself in an act of presumption into the middle of a battle that he's not with me in and I end up wounded and running and all messed up. There are so many people, that's, that's what they think faith is, is that I'm going to throw myself deliberately into some kind of crazy, dangerous situation and I'm going to force God to do something big on my behalf and then when he doesn't do it and we end end up defeated and running for our lives and badly damaged, then we think, what, what's wrong with God? And, and, and then their, their faith is broken in God, and they never understood faith, because people are f- teaching them that that's what faith is. Do something crazy, and God's got to come through for you. That's not faith, that's presumption. They took a step of presumption, a step of faith, and a step of presumption, two entirely different things. So I think that what happens is sometimes you have... Here's a, a mom or a dad, but we'll just talk about the moms. And uh, here she is raising uh, uh, children at home. And she just thinks to herself, you know, I mean, I'm not living the life of faith. I'm just, all I'm doing is raising my children in the ways of the Lord. That's being obedient to God's Word. If that's what He's called us to do, and He's called us to make that the, the, the main focus of our life at this time in our life, and then you're walking by faith. You know, I'm not really, I don't really live by faith. All I do is I just go to work every day, and I work as hard as I can as unto the Lord to just be a witness to the Lord. But, that, but that's, that's faith. I just living obediently to the Lord, you know, on the on the high school campus that I'm I'm a part of and all, and I'm not really making any kind of difference. I don't think I'm walking by faith. I need to do something crazy. No, no, that's walking by faith. You know, I'm just serving, you know, the, the Lord at my local church and 
And, uh, and, and I'm not in some exotic part of the world. I mean, I go home and there's not going to be any monkeys in my house. There are going to be giant lizards that will have my arm half swallowed before I wake up in the middle of the night. Mosquitoes that carry off small animals from the house and the whole thing. I mean, I just live in little old Modesto. Where I'll be blessed if I go outside and find my car still there when I... I don't have anything to worry about here. wonder if my neighbors are, are got a, you know, a, a, a meth lab uh, here on things. Or I'm going to be killed by a gang member before I get home. So I'm not walking by faith. This is then nothing to live in in Modesto and serve in God. I've got to go on the other side of the world to find danger. And we just, well, we define this in some kind of a crazy way. And we just, all we have to do is just obey God and obey His Word in the little place that He's put us. And we're walking by faith. Don't. I just beg you. I mean, I, I, I don't watch uh, Christian television uh, very much. I mean, I may stop and watch 40 seconds or something. And I'm not putting it all down because there is good stuff uh, you can run into on things. But in this realm of faith, it's, it's really, it breaks my heart because I think about the people who think this is faith and they are just set up to be wiped out. And, and they're not going to be advanced in their relationship with God. They're going to they're really, they're really come to some wrong conclusions about God. And so they're not being helped along. They're, they're being you know, it's one step forward and three steps back. And I don't want that to happen to you. And, and this is the, and, and so this section on faith, it, it teaches us some very, very important things about uh, all of this. And, and so he said, and, and then uh, in verse 46, and so you remained at uh, Kadesh or Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. And the interesting thing about verse 46 there is he encapsulates uh, 38 years of wandering in the wilderness into one verse, into one sentence. It's all, it's all right. We go into chapter 2, and we won't tonight, but we're, we're going to move now to the end of that 40 years where they begin to make their way now uh, a second time toward the promised land. 38 years of wandering in the wilderness encapsulated in one sentence. And why? What is the reason? Because when a child of God refuses to live a life of faithful obedience to God's Word, that's a life that's not going to produce anything worth reporting. And there is nothing good to report out of those 38 years. I mean, there's tons of activity. They ate three meals a day. They walked. They talked. They did all kinds of things. Nothing was accomplished for God, the advancement of, of the kingdom. And so it is, even today, the importance for us to walk by faith, the simple faith in God's Word, and then in demonstrating our faith, not in coming up with our own ideas, but just obeying him and what he calls us to do. And so, beautiful chapter. We'll stop there tonight. And so perhaps the worship team could come forward and lead us in some worship this evening as we uh, allow the things that we've looked at tonight and all to maybe settle a little bit deeper into our hearts or give us a chance to, to respond to the Lord in, in that uh, or just for the Lord to receive just pure worship from us as we close.